BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, my voice is shot. Don't worry, not during the interview, but I, I just got out of the studio, so my, my voice is a little shredded, but that will not prevent me from telling you that we have one of the best episodes ever on this show. Today, I am joined by a personal hero, someone that has done so much that if I was going to list all his credentials in this intro, it, it, would, it would take too long. It would take too long. But know for now that he is a member of the 1865 as we continue our celebration of this incredible band this week. Sasha Jenkins joins me on the show. You may know him from Ego Trip as well. You may know him from... I oh, will get into all that in a second. But first... If you'd like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Thank you, Tristan, for all you do each and every week for this show, and he will get the message to me. If you want to find me more directly, I am at left for Damien on Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends, letting everyone know that you enjoy this podcast that we do multiple times a week now over here at Turned Out a Punk. Also, you can support the show by uh, subscribing to it and rating it on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice. Thank you to all you that do that out there. Uh, or you can head over to the Patreon. We have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash turnoutapunk, where we have footnotes and we have fun, and you can check that out. And thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you that do that. Uh, and speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the fine support of the people at Vans who said to me a couple years ago, Damien, do your show. Just uh, don't lose money on it out of your own pocket. We'll help you cover the costs, and they have. And I really want to thank them for doing that because uh, it lets me do it. You know, between that and the Patreon, uh, you know, it's been, uh, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to pay out of my pocket to do the show, which has been great, <laughs> you know, because I love doing this thing. I, I gotta be honest with you. I'd probably still be doing it 
for 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 free or at a loss because I really do enjoy nerding out with people like this week on the show. Well, the second episode on the show. First, if you have not listened to the incredible Honey Child Coleman, check out that episode with Honey Child from the 1865 and then Check out this episode with 1865 member Sasha Jenkins. Now, Sasha Jenkins is someone that I've wanted to talk to for, for forever, for years and years and years. Long before I knew about the 1865 or their incredible Don't Tread on We record, Sasha Jenkins was someone I wanted to meet because of the fact that even before I knew that he was involved in punk and hardcore because he did Ego Trip. And now for those of you unfamiliar with Ego Trip, Ego Trip might be, not might be, is one of the best English language magazines ever, music magazines ever, ever. It had a sense of humor and it had a cool that just, you know, there's there's really nothing else like it. Um, and so from Ego Trip, there spawned the Ego Trip rap list book and then the Ego Trip big book of racism. And then, you know, Ego Trip became the Ego Trip white rapper show. And, and I love all, the, all this stuff I find very interesting. The Ego Trip uh, rap list book, especially, I really do think is the reason I'm doing this podcast, the way it kind of, you know, pulled back the layers of specifically hip hop music and rap music in that book, but like, you know, pulled back the layers and it showed how it's all interconnected and all these sort of cool pop culture factoids. And it was presented in a list format. And oh my gosh, that book, if you do not have that book, go out there and get that thing. That is one of the essential textbooks, I think, for for music. Um, and it's lists, you know, like who who would have thought that a, a book of listicles could contain so much incredible information, but they did it. And so going from there, finding out that Sasha Jenkins not only, you know, did all this incredible stuff in rap and hip hop, but also comes from punk and hardcore. Like th this guy is a roadie for burn. This guy played in hardcore bands. Oh my gosh. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. I could do. I could honestly do this whole episode just talking about Sasha Jenkins. It, it, I really am like a big fan. And I think that comes across in the interview. You'll hear it in a second. Uh, but I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Don't forget to check out the 1865 record, Don't Tread on We, a fantastic album out now on Mass Appeal. And uh, that's it. Uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy the incredible Sasha Jenkins on Turned Out a Punk. <laughs> Sasha, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, as I was just telling you off air, I'm a huge fan of Ego Trip. I don't think I would be doing this podcast without it. So wow. uh, thank you for setting me on this journey way back when. I'm surprised. I mean, it's rare that I meet people who remember Ego Trip. So I'm flattered that you uh, connected with it way back in the 40s. <laughs> well, I think it's the, I think it's the humor approach that you took to music, but also sort of that sort of like you know, just deep study and just being like, you know, like, I, I don't want to say a nerd in any sort of like derogatory term, but I mean like just sort of like an obsessive kind of otaku kind of approach to like, to like culture and like music and stuff like that. And I, my dream was always to do like a punk version of ego trip at some point. And I'm, I'm never going to do that because I don't have the wherewithal to do very much with computers as you've already heard um, earlier right. when we were doing this podcast. But uh, I think this podcast is my attempt to kind of do, an extension of what ego trip would be to punk, I guess. Well, that's flattering. Um, you know, for those who don't know, ego trip was a zine that I used to publish way back. And, uh, before that I had published a hip hop newspaper called beat down, which was one of the first hip hop newspapers. I co-published that with a childhood friend 
And then before that, I published a graffiti zine called Graphic Scenes and Explicit Language. And that, interestingly enough, was modeled after the New Breed compilation tape booklet um, printed at the same printer. You know, Chaka Malik, who was, you know, is frontman for Burn and Orange 9mm, and now he goes by Ghost Decibels. He and I went to high school together, and, you know, he's a black dude, I'm a black dude, and I see him in the hallway. And he had a black book. And for those who understand graffiti culture, he was a graffiti writer. And I saw that and struck up a conversation with him. And we became friends. He was interested in skateboarding. And me and my friend kind of turned him on to that. And he would make me these mixtapes. This must have been like 1986. And hardcore mixtapes. And, you know, I was a dude who liked Hendrix and The Who. And I liked hip hop. I liked all kinds of things. But I was a rock dude. And he made me this mixtape that had all these songs on it. And for whatever reason, the bad brains just stuck out. I don't know why. And I remember saying to him, like, what band is this? And he was like, it's the bad brains. And it was I against I. And I was like, I got to have this record. I'll buy it from you. So he sold me like a scratched up I against I <laughs> for like $10. Um, but where I grew up in Astoria, Queens... It's like a bastion of New York hardcore. Um, you know, the Leeway guys lived down the block from me. And how I knew some of those guys was pre-hardcore. This is back when kids from neighborhoods would play other neighborhoods and tackle football. So there's a park called Astoria Park, and we would play other kids from other neighborhoods. Um, essentially, they weren't another neighborhood, but they were a different block. So some of those guys we knew, or I knew from football, and some of these guys I just knew from high school. And there was a band called the New York Hoods. And I remember Chaka would make these videotapes where he re-edited skate videos and he would put, you know, hardcore music under it. He'd put his own, you know, the bands that he liked under, you know, as a musical bed for these videos. And I remember this one song by the band New York Hoods. I was like, who made this song? He's like, oh, New York Hoods. You know, the singer goes to our school. And I was like, what? And that was a big revelation for me. It was like, wow, someone in my high school made the song that I really like. I didn't know anything about recording or anything, but it was like a big deal. And, you know, the things I gravitated to in my youth, graffiti, skateboarding, hardcore, hip hop, there's always this sensibility of doing it yourself. And so there was something very appealing to me about, you know, this do it, doing it yourself kind of thing. And then, going even way back to like 1983 in junior high school I had a home economics class and there was a guy who got left back a few times and his name was John Kelly and he knew I was interested in graffiti and he showed me this this graffiti thing that he would do and it said UW in a circle and I was like what's UW he's like oh it's urban waste it's my band and I was like and he would show me photos from CBGBs, and I was like, I didn't understand what it was. And then years later, when I heard, you know, the Urban Waste, you know, Seven Inch with Police Brutality, uh, a very apropos song for the times, I loved it. And I was like, yo, I know this guy. I went to junior high school with this dude, and I remember running into him on the train years later. And I was like, yo, dude, Urban fucking Waste, that's my <laughs> shit. And he looked at me like I was crazy. But at you know at that point I had learned about you know uh, uh, Chaka making the initial connection for me 
um, taking me to shows, um, and me sort of learning about the aesthetics of it and knowing people in bands and just getting really jazzed on it. And the funny thing is maybe eight years ago, me and John Kelly reconnected and I went to his house and he pulled out this phone book, like an old school, small phone book. And he showed me my name, Sasha Jenkins with my mother's phone number. And then the next page was Dave Grohl's number because he was in scream. Yeah. And I'm like, how freaky is this? Like, you know, so the hardcore thing or the punk thing came to me as a kid in New York city who was already attuned to various subcultures. And there were kids from my community who I knew. And ironically, an, uh, another kid from, you know, Chuck was a, from a few neighborhoods over. Um, he was the one who really sort of plugged me into it. And then when he started Burn with Gavin, uh, who was in a band called Absolution before that, you know, here I am at 17, 18, 19, going to Boston where they're playing a show, you know, or DC where they're playing a show. And I'm a roadie. I'm in, I'm in Rhode Island. You know, I'm a roadie for Burn and Reading, Pennsylvania, where almost jumped by Nazi skinheads, you know, uh, I just had such a robust experience in a very direct, meaningful way. And it got me meeting people different from me. It got me meeting people in different cities before the internet, before cell phones. Um, and so, and then eventually there's this network of graffiti artists who are coming out of hardcore. And so that set up a network all over the East Coast and eventually around the country. So eventually all these subcultures I was interested in started to converge in ways that really pulled me in and spoke to me. I guess, uh, you know, and Shaka, uh, definitely a friend of the show and Freddie's a friend of the show as well. But I, I, I kind of wanted to even go back before that to start it off. But when was the first time you ever came across punk, like, or even heard about it as a genre, even before being exposed to hardcore a little bit later on? Um, I mean, actual punk, like, the even sex the pistols? Yeah, like, absolutely. Like, any, even just the word out of context type thing, even. I mean, I think, sadly, the Quincy episode yeah. <laughs> um, was something that I remember in my youth. And I don't, it wasn't even first run at that point. Mm-hmm. But I remember that that episode of Quincy that had the whole the whole punk thing. So I think that was sort of my first connection to what it might have been. Mm-hmm. But other than that, for me, it was, you know, going to uh, a place called the Lismore Lounge in like 1986, 87. Uh, and it was like Absolution, a band called Pressure Release, and a band called Bug Out Society, which for me, my first show, you have these white guys dressed like the Beastie Boys. Um, they're, they're, they were in like throwback hip hop, suede pumas and and they had a song called Lees and Pumas, and then they were throwing White Castle burgers. <laughs> and I remember saying to myself, like, you know, this is fucked up. Like, this is disrespectful. They're, like, wasting food. Like, who the fuck does this? Right? I, I didn't understand how it worked. I mean, that would never fly in this era of, of you know, so many vegans. And yeah, you can't get away with throwing burgers. But that's what it was. And it was in a basement. And it was... You know, people were in a pit and pushing each other, and it was a completely foreign experience to me. 
but there was something about it that I eventually figured out was, you know, and, and I know race keeps coming up, but I just want to say that like white kids connecting with hardcore and connecting with therapeutic nature of the mosh pit and being able to have that release to be able to go in the pit, shove somebody, get all this adrenaline pumping and then walk out peacefully. Now, mind you, in New York City, shit would get crazy sometimes. Some people had hammers in the pit. But for the most part, it was organized and civilized confusion. And coming out of that experience, I felt like it was therapeutic. Even though I wasn't the wildest person in the pit or in the pit, you know, I wasn't a star. Like Chaka was a star. Like he had a, a dance style. Um, I didn't have any of that, but... I remember coming, leaving a show and feeling that same feeling you get when you go swimming for a couple of hours. You feel kind of tired, but you feel like you've achieved something. You felt like you feel like there's some kind of release. And there's something in that release that I always felt that like if kids of color understood it or had or more of them had access to it. Now, mind you, things are a lot different now and they're way more kids of color involved in hardcore and punk. But um and they too have discovered what I discovered. There's something very powerful and therapeutic in the actual exercise of being in the pit, being around your peers, being around a couple of people you don't like, having a level of trust, expressing yourself, getting your frustrations out. I mean, it's just it's am- it was it's amazing. And uh unfortunately in this era of COVID and the world changing, I don't know when when that will return. Hopefully it can. Hopefully people won't be afraid, but it's powerful and it definitely affected my life, changed my life. Yeah. There's, it's just, um, I don't know, you're, as you're saying, it's, it's this sort of release, right. And the sort of this sort of, you know, and when it's, you know, obviously idealized situation, but when it's a safe space where you can kind of express yourself like that and not be an asshole and ruin someone's night, like it, it, it can be that sort of like, yeah, as you're saying a therapeutic kind of uh, effect to it. Yep. Um, you know, another thing that you kind of touched on there, which is something that when Freddie was on the show and a lot of work that Freddie has done, um, you know, through his book and stuff is sort of this idea of the connection between rap and punk, well, hardcore speaking sort of exclusively about, but through graffiti and sort of like how far that goes back with like, you know, frontline and Mackie and the sort of the connection that comes out of that with like rap production and and you know Mackie obviously doing graffiti for the beastie boys early on behind their stage show when they were playing and having connection with the guys in style wars like it's amazing how new york you've got this sort of like moment where hardcore happens and and rap's happening and graffiti's happening and obviously breakdancing's happening and moshing's happening too to kind of throw it in there but it feels like there's just like such a such an energy in that city obviously yeah i mean it was, you know, and it's hard to reimagine it um, because we would go outside and play. You know, we would play games. Like kids now don't play games. You know, they stay in. They stay on their gadgets. And, you know, when you were a part of a subculture back then, it was a special thing. And you could see someone on the train and know that they were like you. They were a part of your tribe. And you, you would start a conversation. I mean – you know, you would go someplace, you get on the subway and a kid knows what another graffiti writer looks like. There's ink stains on your shoes. <laughs> and then someone says, yo, what you write? You know what I mean? That's how the conversation starts. And it's the same thing with hardcore, you know? Um, 
you can, you know, it's easy to identify a hardcore kid. Now it's a little different. Like people can go to uh, Target and buy a Nirvana t-shirt or Led Zeppelin. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. everyone wears Doc Martens. I mean, the explosion of Vans in the hood. I never thought Vans would be that popular in the hood, but you know, Vans is making a lot of money in the hood. Um, people wear Doc Martens. So it's a different time. It's harder to identify someone now based on the way they dressed. And back then, you know, based on what you're into, you could figure out who was a part of your tribe and connect with them. And it was, uh, it was an exciting time. It didn't have the same distractions, the internet and, and the like. Yeah, exactly. Different. And like you were saying, like, you, you know, if it wasn't for connecting with Chaka, you never would have heard all these bands because it wasn't like these bands were being played on the radio or that you could click a button on a streaming service and get some compilation that they're featured on or something like it was a quest to get this stuff. Yeah. And it was, you know, personal. He made, he made a mix for me based on what he liked and, or what he thought I should be into. Um, you know, also something that you touched on and, you know, something that's obviously been horribly glossed over is sort of like the, the role of, of early black punks in New York and, 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 Puerto Rican punks in New York and hardcore kids and stuff like that. And you hear about bands like pure hell and you hear about these, these bands that were kind of happening that just, you know, forever, well, not for whatever reason, obviously for very clear reasons, but have been kind of like forgotten about and it's, and it's changing, you know, I think Afropunk did a lot to, to help change that, but it's also, you know, like articles that are being written to these days where these bands are kind of being explored for the first time. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it wasn't even a thing, right? Like, you know, I always felt, you know, although people were different from me, you know, in New York, you had a convergence of rich kids from Connecticut who would come in to go to shows, right? And so I didn't understand it fully, but there was a class distinction happening. You know, the the the, the kid from Darien, Connecticut is different from, you know, and I didn't understand that, you know, I, I wasn't, my understanding of you know, class and race wasn't as sophisticated as it is now, but you had the, the white kids from Darien, Connecticut, and you had the white kids from Queens. And there was a difference, you know, uh, the kids from Connecticut had nice clothes and like Fred Perry and, and all this other stuff. And the kids from Queens maybe had a champion hoodie, you know? So there were, there were class distinctions that were happening, but like, were we aware, like, you know, was Gingy from Absolution aware that he was black? Of course. Was Chaka aware that he was black? You know, we all were, but for the most part, it's New York City, right? So no one's really like, yo, these guys are black. You know, no one's thinking about it in those terms. It's not that literal because it's New York City and there's a melting pot of black, brown, yellow, any color in the rainbow. You know, the the thing I neglected to mention is that in high school, Isaac, um, you know, people know him, Danny Diablo, singer for Crown of Thorns. He was in in my gym class and his locker was across from mine and he had a Chromags or an agnostic front t-shirt on. I was like, what do you know about that? He's like, what do you know about that? And so we started a conversation. Then graffiti came up and then we just, you know, struck up a conversation. And then it was a combination of myself and Chaka who took Isaac to his first show. You know, so and Isaac is, you know, half Puerto Rican, half Jewish. And the joke for me was always been I went to Isaac's house for the first time and I met his mom. And he'll tell you this. And I was like, yo, dude, your mom is black. Your mom looks like my mom, you know, and his mom is 
you know, Afro Boricua, you know, uh, you know, of Puerto Rican descent with obviously African heritage. And my mom is from Haiti, you know, um, you know, my mom is, is mixed. Her father was born in Haiti, but his parents were Jews who emigrated from France, um, in the late 1800s. So, you know, I, I, I looked at Isaac's mom and I said, yo, dude, your mom's black, you know? So it was, you know, New York city, it's not like Trenton, New Jersey. I mean, we went to Trenton, New, New Jersey and had some skirmishes with Nazi skinheads. We went to Reading, Pennsylvania and literally, um, these Nazis were holding up a little kid who must have been like 13, who was Sieg Heiling us. They were holding him up to Sieg, Sieg Heil us. Byrne was opening for Sick of It All. And I remember going to the security guard, who was a big black dude, and I was like, yo, man, what's up with this? And he's like, hey, man, they don't mess with me. And it was the most bizarre thing. Like These Nazis were respecting the, the, the black bouncer who worked there because I guess they got to see him every weekend, so there's a level of understanding. But because Byrne had a black singer and a black roadie, it was a problem. So literally, the stage, the the exit door was literally right right behind the drum kit was a little door that led to a back alley. And as soon as we rapped, like we just packed up all our shit and got right in the van and sped out of Reading, PA. I don't know what happened. I'm sure Sick of Vol was fine, but they were headlining, but we didn't stick around because it was just the most bizarre thing. Yeah, it's super fucked up when it gets like how, like punk, it's just, it's amazing. In New York City especially, it's like, Everyone kind of coexists at peace there, but there's just like such extreme politics at play in this kind of genre. Yeah, I mean, I think if there, if there, if they, if there were, you know, people with sort of racist tendencies or feelings, they were the minority and they kept quiet because mm-hmm. if they didn't, they would get hurt. Mm-hmm. Nobody really wants to get hurt. Mm-hmm. You can't really prove a point in New York City if that's your position. It's New York City. We're a cosmopolitan city. And that was what was great about it. You know, I learned about people that I wouldn't have known if I just stayed in my Astoria, Queens neighborhood. You know, like not all black people are the same. Not all white people are the same. There's class distinctions. There's regional geographic, geographical things that, you know, have a hand in who people are and how they see the world. And through hardcore, I got to meet a great cross-section of people. And what's amazing is so many people back then, the power of doing it yourself you know, it, it, it continues on later in life and people have gone on to do cool shit. Absolutely. Well, you, you bring up the class thing and it's funny cause like I've had on a bunch of people from DC and obviously there's people in poverty in DC definitely, but in DC hardcore, it seems like there was a lot more affluence. So, you know, Brian Baker and people like that remark when they came to New York about how, how much more legit it was and how much more street it was and how much, you know, more kind of real it was. Brian Baker is the man. He's my inspiration. One of my favorite guitar players. You know that guy? Oh yeah. Well, he's been on the show, uh, and it, it's a it was it's a funny episode because he is the most honest person about trying to make it. You know, like a lot of people come on the show and talk about how conflicted they were at different times, and he's like, "No, I joined uh, Doggy Style, and it sounded like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and I fucking ate the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but I thought it was going to be big, so I figured." Right. What the hell, you know? So it was really refreshing to have someone come on the show and just be completely honest about their intentions at every step. That guy's the man. Shout out to Brian Baker. Amazing guitar player. Um, I guess going back to kind of like your journey into the show, you mentioned sort of that Absolution show, which I'm sure would have been incredible. But that's like, it seems like, you know, from people that have come on the show and talked about it, like a real pivotal time in New York where there is a kind of a shift kind of happening where you like, 
you talked about how some shows are, are a lot more violent and that stuff was kind of on the rise from what I hear. And, and there's also sort of the rise of sort of that ABC, no Rio scene. Did you notice that kind of stuff happening around you as you're getting into it? Well, you know, by the time I'm really going to shows, I mean, whatever violence that was occurring was what I was accustomed to coming from where I grew up. So it wasn't really like, um, something that, had a real effect on me. I think it more so had an effect on a lot of the kids from Connecticut and from other places that weren't, you know, the five boroughs. And there were a lot of kids who came from all over to go to the shows. I think, you know, the violence that we were accustomed to in New York City, living where we lived, for those kids, it was too much. It was it was uh, something that they weren't into. I mean, who's really into violence? I'm not into it. I'm not a violent guy at all, but I had been sort of initiated into the, the the mindset of people being violent. So it definitely had a shift. I think it, it created a shift where like the sort of youth of today sort of straight edge types felt alienated in New York City in some ways and, you know, moved on to different things or moved on to emo or other things. Um, but those kids, I noticed, stopped coming around and they probably didn't see themselves in what was going on because it was so foreign to their own experience, which is understandable. Mm -hmm. So what were some of the other kind of like shows or bands at that time that you were kind of gravitating towards? Well, I mean, I have to say absolution. Um, another interesting fact is like, you know, Gingy Chaka, myself, you think about the kids of color who were, drawn to hardcore i mean Gingy's dad is marion brown who is phenomenal important crucial jazz artist you know chaka's father who recently passed away rest in peace um mr harris patahotep he was an artist and a, a filmmaker a photographer um who uh beautiful photography of you know Jimi hendrix on down james brown you know, he, he his uh, artwork, uh, one of his photos of, a, I believe, an African mask is on the cover of the first Burn 7-inch. And, you know, uh, the back cover is a, a video still of something I shot. You know, my dad was a filmmaker. You know, his film, uh, Cane River, uh, recently released after 40 years, was lost. And now it's being hailed as one of the best, you know, movies of 2020 ironically released by Adam Yauch's company, Oscilloscope. Point I'm trying to make is all of us were sort of sons and daughters of artists and people who understood and appreciated and respected culture. And I think that's why we, we were able to have a level of sensitivity and understanding wherein we could see that there was real value in what hardcore represented, what punk represented, and what it represents is identity. And when you can match your identity, I mean, Rise Above, right? That's a civil rights song. You know what I mean? I could listen to Rise Above and see Martin Luther King. You know, like, I, I listen to Victim in Pain, like Agnostic Front. I mean, that shit to me is just, I mean, if you really listen to the lyrics, you can apply it to your identity, right? I guess if you were Nazi skin, you could apply Rise Above to your your identity. But 
for me, Rise Above spoke to who I who I was and where I wanted to go and that kind of attitude I wanted to have in my approach. And so hardcore is all about identity. And when you have the ability to create and own your identity, that's power, you know? And again, like that ability to sort of be a part of something, make a zine, do this, start a band, all that stuff really was inspiring for me. And I, um, I don't know, I don't know, you know, I really hope that there's a new generation of young folks who can really connect with that ethos and make their own stuff. I mean, obviously the internet makes it possible to do a lot of your own stuff, but we were ahead of the curve before the internet, we were doing our own thing and making our own zines. And again, like the example I gave of the new, the new breed compilation, the booklet, I literally went to the same printer because Chaka told me where it was. And, you know, I asked my mom for like a thousand dollars, which was a lot of money in 1988. <laughs> and I didn't think she was going to give it to me. She didn't fully understand what I was going to do with that money, but <laughs> she somehow scraped together a thousand dollars and I printed my zine. And that zine, which was a combination of and inspired by the New Breed compilation in terms of layout, but also Phase Two was a legendary, you know, writer. He hated the term graffiti. Phase Two is one of the most important writers in the culture of writing or graffiti writing. He had a zine called IGT, which was initially International Graffiti Times, but of course he hates the word graffiti. It's International Get Hip Times. And as a kid, I wrote to him and I said. I'm a huge fan of your zine. Is there any advice you can give me? And he wrote a six-page letter, beautiful calligraphy, beautiful handwriting, basically telling me that I could do it. And it was like, wow, phase two wrote me back. And he told me that I could, I should start my zine. He totally encouraged me to do it. And so the combination of sort of being inspired by phase two and IGT and looking at what Chaka and Freddie did and putting the two together, I mean, that and my mom scraping together the money, that led to me doing everything I do today. So I guess going back to, you know, starting that, that zine, like, where were you thinking, like, where did you distribute it? Like, what was the sort of like channels and like, you know, mentioning that there's only like sort of two sort of inspirations for you at this point? Well, there was a store called Soho Zat. Um, which was sort of a head shop slash comic book store that sold the other two graffiti zines in the world. And so <laughs> it had built up a fan base. So I would go there and sell them there. And graffiti artists from around the world knew about this location because it was around the corner from Henry Chalfont studio. Henry Chalfont did the book Subway Art and film Style Wars. And so kids would knock on his door. And if Henry was around, he'd let you in and look at his photographs of you know subway trains so it was centrally located and it was a flight it was a trap you know a, a honey hole for graffiti writers from around the world and so i could sell a couple of hundred copies there and then maybe five copies one would be in dusseldorf germany you know some kid who's on vacation with his family goes back to dusseldorf and writes me and so now i've got pen pals from around the world who are trading me photographs of graffiti in germany and at the time no one really cared 
everyone wanted New York City subway cars because they were like baseball cards. You know, like if you can get a Henry Chalfant photograph, it's like having a Babe Ruth baseball card. So between that one location, there was also a zine shop called See Here that sold a lot of punk zines on the, on the Lower East Side. They also sold it. So between those two locations and people writing directly to me, you know, I had a I had a zine that made a few dollars. You know, not, I didn't get rich, but it would lead me into you know other sort of endeavors in the world of printing, print printmaking. It's funny you brought up Star Wars because even just to see that movie in the time we're talking about, where you had to search out these things, like it was aired on TV what like three times maybe, and yeah. then it became like bootleg tapes or hopefully a public library would have a print. Like well, that's what in Toronto, there was a Toronto reference library and it would just be writers going and watching <laughs> style Wars in screening rooms because that yeah. was the only way to see it. Yeah. I mean, I had heard it was on PBS. I didn't see it for years. It took me a while to see it. And then, you know, I wound up, you know, working with Henry as a PA on a, on a film and, you know, he wound up actually being, he gave me the money to start Ego Trip, that's you know? Awesome. And then he and I did a book called Training Days, wherein I interviewed a bunch of artists, graffiti writers. And so it's like Q&As with these artists sort of talking about what it meant to be a writer back then and how they felt with Henry's photograph. So I was in a really bad junior high school in Queens. I went to me and Nas went to the same junior high and they told him the same thing. Like, you know, our guidance counselors told us we should go to vocational school. Um, Nas eventually dropped out in the ninth grade. I stuck with it. And I had an art teacher named Mr. Otto and I had a copy of Subway Art. He said, look, if you don't give me any trouble, you can stay in the back of the class and draw graffiti all day. I think it's cool. Just don't give me a hard time. For some reason, he thought I was going to be a pain in his ass. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a whole semester in Mr. Otto's class just pouring over my copy of Subway Art. And you know, years later, Henry would become a friend and mentor. So there's something, there's there's power in sort of study, you know, and I think as a kid, everything that I was really interested in, I would reach out to folks who would be mentors, you know, eventually, you know, in publishing Ego Trip, I did an interview with Daryl Jennifer of Bad Brains. And I had initially interviewed him for Vibe Magazine and he was in the middle of recording God of Love. He was at uh, Electric Lady Studios in New York, and it was over the phone. And maybe it was a bad day for him, but I was like, damn, I just spoke to my idol, and he's just kind of like, whatever. But then I wound up interviewing him because the Black Docs record was coming out, and I interviewed him for Ego Trip. And we just hit it off. And I said, man, I've always wanted to write a book about you guys. And he's like, yeah, come on up. Come to Woodstock. And I, he invited me to his house. And that struck up uh, a friendship and, uh, you know, eventually, you know, this guy is one of the greatest musicians, one of the greatest living musicians, in my opinion. And he was never selfish. I mean, obviously, I'm not on his level of musicianship, musician, musicianship, but he was always very generous in willing to like, hey, let's work on a track. Let's record some stuff, you know. Um and that would eventually lead to this band that I did with Daryl and a rapper named Murs called the White Man Bingo some years ago. Yeah, so, an incredible band too. Like I think uh, a band that's you know unfortunately o overlooked in punk and hardcore a little bit. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, you know, it's one of these things where I'm, I'm, I'm I kind of hate rap rock, mm -hmm. and I said to myself, how can I make something that was 
true to hip hop and true to rock without it being corny. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like we achieved that with White Man Dingo. So for me, um, it was a great experience. And, you know, I learned so much from Daryl, like whether it's Phase Two or Henry Chalfont or Daryl Jennifer, my mentors have been immense. And he always taught me, like, whatever you do, man, your shit can't be vague. Like, your, your lines have to be sharp. The minute, you know, you're, you're vague, you know, you lose, you lose the crowd. And, you know, rehearsals weren't easy, you know. Um, but I think he knew that I had to, you know, I wasn't on his level. The level of artistry and suffering that he sort of, you know, the sacrifices he made to be who he was, you know, here I am, some guy who like plays a little guitar and has these aspirations. He wanted to make sure that if I was playing with him, I had to not embarrass him. I might have embarrassed him once or twice, but I think I did okay considering. Um, and people really like the White Man Dingo's record. You know, we've been talking about maybe, you know, doing a new record or whatever, but um, I'm, I'm proud of it. I think it's pretty good. Yeah, and he's like, you know, one of the greatest of all time. You know, like the Bad Brains are kind of like the uncoverable band because no one's going to do it justice. Yeah, and and they were always a north star for me. I always felt like if the bad brains are here and they're comfortable, I'm comfortable. I'm good. I mean, they're the best. Like I, I'm, there's no reason to feel different or weird. Like you can you can be a part of this thing and be somebody and inspire people and change people's lives. And I mean, I've seen grown men kiss Daryl's hand. You know, mm-hmm. I've seen. You know, the power of HR and you, you, you hear about Henry Rollins and all these guys who said, you know, this was the guy who told me I can do it. You know, um, they're a huge inspiration for a lot of people, myself included. And, um, you know, again, to have the great fortune of collaborating with him um, on music has been um, an incredible, incredible experience for me. Yeah, and I guess it goes to say, like, you know, it goes back to even talking about Star Wars. Like, I showed it to my kids the other day. and. You know, I try and get them into stuff and, and, and most of it just like goes in one ear and one out the other, but they love that documentary. Like there's a timeless feel to it in the same way, you know, flipping through the ego trip rap list book today. I'm like, this still is an amazing book. Like I could still read this every day and, and never get bored of this thing. Like there's just something where if something's honest and like a, a true representation of something, it, it kind of has a, a staying power that, you know, a lot of stuff will disappear around. Yeah. Well, you know, Ego Trip, you know, I equate Ego Trip, Ego Trip's a band. You know, Ego Trip was a, when Ego Trip was running tight, it, Ego Trip was an amazing band. I mean, you know, different people, like different eras of Black Flag, but I think like for me, <laughs> 81 to like 83 Black Flag is my shit. Same with like, you know, 81 to like 83 Bad Brains. There's something about that 81, 83 period yeah. um, that's fantastic. And so- you know, Ego Trip in its prime might have been 81 to 83 Black Flag. And, um, you know, uh, you know, two guys coming from California, Brent Rollins, you know, magnificent designer, um, Gabe Alvarez, fantastic writer. Those two guys are from California. Jeff Mao, originally from Massachusetts and living in New York. And then myself and Elliot Wilson, you know, native New Yorkers and yeah, there was a real geeky nature to it, and it's totally akin to the listy world that we live in or the internet. And 
even memes. I don't know if you remember, like Ego Trip had lots of memes before yeah. anybody else. We don't really get credit for that, but I mean, how do you get credit for memes? Um, but it was this marquee puppet. Like that's a meme, like a physical meme, right? Like that, that like, you know, like just everything about the mag, you're right. Like it pre foretells this era kind of perfectly. Yeah. And you know, uh, Noah Callahan Bever, who was an intern for us would go on to run complex magazine. And I think a lot of the stuff that he learned from us and the listy nature of a lot of what came out of ego trip was totally in step with where complex was at the time. And, I don't know. It's, it's, you know, the, your fellow Canadians, the vice guys early on reached out and said that ego trip was an inspiration, but that and $2 would get you on the, on the subway <laughs> train. Um, but they were humble enough to say that ego trip was an influence. Gavin McGinnis, on the other hand, don't get me started on that guy. Um, um, yeah. Too well, bad. No Canada. one wants to claim him up here either. Like, so, uh, that is, a. Uh... As a person with uh, no no backing, as, as well, no cool backing. Well, put it that way. Well, it's funny because he tried to call me out. There was a a piece that Al Jazeera did on you know black punks or whatever, and I made a statement saying if you're black, you're you're punk all the time because you know your typical punk rocker, right? If you're a white punk rocker and you get a mohawk and you put safety pins in your nose, all this shit that's actually not a big deal anymore. But back in the days. You know, in some ways, you're sort of, you were a freak even to white people, right? And so you were sort of, in some ways, betraying your white privilege to a certain extent by taking on these characteristics that were not common in even white society that were shunned. You know, these characteristics were shunned by white society. So you can argue that, you know, if you're a white punk in 1983 who had all these tattoos and mohawk and blah, blah, blah. You were a scary individual, right? You were anti-society. You know, society was afraid of you. It's the Quincy episode or whatever. You were bad news. But at a certain point, if you decide, you know what, I want to clean up and get a job and like get away from this shit and have a normal haircut, you could sort of go back to the privilege that you might enjoy as a white person, right? We don't we don't all have to agree on that. That's fine. No, I, I can't take off. Absolutely. I can't take off my black skin, so it is what it is. And so Gavin McGinnis, first of all, tried to come after me saying that I'm not fucking punk or hard. What do I know about punk? This motherfucker doesn't know shit about my background or where the fuck I come from. And then, you know, he and his minions go on this whole rant about like, why do black people always want to claim everything and blah, blah, blah. And you have your, you have rap. Like, why do you want to claim punk? And it's just like, Yo, where do you think rock and roll came from? Like, yeah. do you guys not understand that the term rock and roll is black slang for fucking? Like some black dude in 1922 said, hey, baby, let's rock and roll. That's where rock and roll comes from. So even if it's punk rock, you mean to tell me you don't think that black people had a hand in fucking informing what it would be? Like, why do you think so many people were afraid of Elvis and the way he danced? Right, so then I get attacked by Gavin's fucking minions, who are saying that oh he's not punk, and then he goes in and talks about my skin. Right, I had chickenpox really bad as a kid. I almost died. Right, I have these scars. You know, at this point, I look at it as that's my Spider-Man shit. Like I got bit by a fucking radioactive tick or spider, and it makes me different. It makes me stand out. And sure, as a kid, it was painful, but you know what? As an adult, I could give a fuck. 
And for this guy to spend this time trying to come after me on my fucking appearance and then attacking me saying that, Hey, I'm not, I, I don't have a real punk rock pedigree and all this bullshit. It's like, yo dude, go fuck yourself. You know what I mean? Like you don't know my background. You don't know, you know, my history. You don't know what punk has done for me, what hardcore has done for me, the opportunities it's created for me or the people that I've met. You don't know any of that. And you want to use that to rile people up uh, uh, for race and for, and, and sort of segueing into the America that we're in now and the punk that I loved, whether it was Reagan youth, cause for alarm, agnostic front, like it was people talking about their struggles, talking about what they wanted to change talking about their identity, right? And for for them, for him and his minions to say, oh, you know, black people have no place in this. Like, stay stay in your lane. It's just ridiculous. And it was like, oh, yeah, they have bad brains. That's about it. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? It just shows, like, his complete lack of understanding of, like, yeah, not just punk history, not just hardcore history, but, like, all rock and roll history. Like, he is just... Well, I like it. It's just like it, it. It's comedic how fucking wrong he is on everything. Like it's just like, dude, take take a seat. Like like it's over. Like no one in punk wants him. No one in punk claims him. No one. No one. Right. I mean, people have the right to their opinions, and it's fine. You can believe what you want, but when you're not dealing with facts, yeah, and that's what's scary about the the era that we're in. Like. What era are you, are you living in when you're not even educated enough to understand that rock and roll was black slang for sex? Like, so right there and then, you, you know, how do you say that we don't have a place, you know, that we're somehow trying to claim punk rock? Like, I'm not trying to claim punk rock, but um, I don't know. It was just It was just kind of hilarious that he would randomly, you know, it was like a, you know, how dare these black people say... You're, when you're black, you're punk all the time. I mean, you don't have to agree with that. That's fine. But like how that is a jumping off point for these idiots online just talking shit. That's why I don't even have social media because it just – you become a target for um, people who want to have opinions who are uninformed. I mean you can have a totally informed opinion and I can disagree with it. But at least if it's informed, you know, like I don't like screwdriver. But I can say, you know what? Screwdriver has some shit where it's like, I can understand why people would like it and it's catchy, right? But you're not going to catch me rocking Screwdriver, but I can listen to it and say, yo, okay, I hear what they're doing. I'm, the message isn't for me. It, is, it wasn't intended for me, but I can see why people might like it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm even enough to accept that. But when you when you take it to a whole other level where you question someone's authenticity, you question you know, a, a whole identity, you question someone's place. That's nothing I experienced in New York City. You know, I never felt like anyone was questioning whether or not I belonged. And that was what was special about New York. But you go outside of New York and sometimes it was a little different. And like, not to dwell on this anymore, but like, how do you listen to even a band like Screwdriver, even a, like the Sex Pistols, like any band and not hear like Chuck Berry riffs? <laughs> like, how how are you ignoring that? Like, what would this stuff sound like without the influence of black music? Like, it wouldn't have a sound. Like, it wouldn't be this music at all. Well, your man from the Ramones, guitar player, like, 
I heard his position was sort of like, yeah, I'm not influenced by any of that stuff. It's my own thing. And it's like, <laughs> that's what he believed. And, you know, he might have had, you know, mind you, I'm from Queens and I love the Ramones. I don't care what the political position is that that dude had. I'm down with the Ramones. But it's like, if you if you don't understand the history and, and you don't, you can't even understand who came before you and what it meant, it's like, again, in this climate, People want to believe what they want to believe, and those people have always been there. Now you have Fox News and you have the internet, and you just get programmed what you believe you want to hear, and mm -hmm. people don't go beyond that. Mm -hmm. Well, not to pivot too much, but just at the same time to go back to something a little more pleasant to talk about. Um, how how did Beatdown kind of come together? I've, and I've also, that's an impossible zine to find now. Like, have you ever thought about, is there any sort of talk of reissuing it ever? Well, Beatdown was started by myself and a guy named Haji, who we grew up together. We were friends since we were kids, and he was a hip-hop producer. He was sort of an understudy of Marley Marl, and um, he knew people in the music industry at a young age. And so he had some connections, and I was coming off of my graffiti zine. And the last couple of issues of my zine, I started doing review. reviewed Lord Finesse's first album, Funky Technician, which is a great album. and you know, I went away to a community college in upstate New York called Ulster County Community College. Why I went there, I have no idea, but I just wanted to get out of New York City. It was two hours away, and I wound up working on a school newspaper. And one day, I saw the bill for the newspaper, and it was like 600 bucks. And I was like, yo, I can do this. So after doing two semesters there, I moved back to, New moved back to Queens to my mom's house. And I said to Haji, like, hey, let's start a newspaper. And... um it cost about $630, and I remember we went to the print shop, which was literally across the street from Queensbridge Housing Projects, home of Nas and Marley Marl and Roxanne Chante and all these great hip-hop artists. And we went in there with the exact same amount. It was like $326.33, like with actual change, like 50-50. And we got our first issue. Cypress Hill was on the cover. And back then, Tommy Boy Records had a monopoly on the back covers of magazines. And the idea was if you could get Tommy Boy to buy your back cover for a year or two, it would pay for your your print run for a while and it would help you to score other advertisers because they'd see Tommy Boy and then they would advertise. So we were able to get convinced Tommy Boy to advertise. We printed our first issue and we started printing more issues. You know, I was you know, not in school. And I was focusing on doing the newspaper. And then eventually, you know, myself and Haji, you know, we're childhood friends. We got into something really silly and we had a major falling out and we didn't talk. He lived across the street from me and it turned into this whole thing. And then I was kind of down in the dumps trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And somehow I got mono and I was literally on my ass for six months trying to figure it out. And then Elliot Wilson, who was the music editor at Beatdown, who I knew from high school but in the periphery. I didn't know him personally, but I'd seen him around. Pretty much everyone, most people after I left Beatdown left with me. And so it was like, well, what are we going to do next? And I said, look, I'm down to do something new, but it can't just be hip hop because I don't just like hip hop. And I think that kids in the 90s like some kids like rock too some kids like skateboarding all these things that were my general interest beyond hip-hop 
hardcore, all these things. I was like, I want to do a magazine that is more reflective of my interests because I think if we're getting ads from hip hop groups and rock groups, if I can get a Sam I Am ad and a Naughty by Nature ad, that Sam I Am ad is not going to be in the source or any of these other magazines. And I think the wave of kids being into lots of different things is is happening. So, you know, I went to Henry Chalfont to his studio, which I mentioned earlier, and I did a whole presentation. And I said, for $10,000, I'll be able to buy a Mac computer and I'll be able to print one issue of the magazine. And I guarantee you that I'll be able to get the advertising to, you know, to populate the other issues and uh, create something that was sustainable. And he cut me the check and that's what happened. We um, did Ego Trip and we got more and more advertising. And then simultaneously, both myself and Elliot were writing for Vibe and Spin and all these other magazines. And then eventually we both got jobs. He wound up working at The Source and I wound up working at Vibe. So it was this interesting farm team system where we were both editors at these magazines that had money. We couldn't really afford to pay people to write for Ego Trip, but we would assign them things at Vibe or Source. So interestingly enough, the Source and Vibe were secretly funding Ego Trip because that way we were able to pay our writers and give them opportunities to help grow their names and their voices. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> from there, Ego Trip, we wound up doing books. We did um, you know, the book of rap lists. And then we did a book called the big book of racism where we made fun of everybody. And then someone at VH1 gave away the big book of racism as a stocking stuffer for Christmas. And this woman, Christina Norman, who was big cheese at Viacom at the time, someone suggested to her that maybe, um, they should explore doing a television show with us and the rest is history. It led to um, one of those, you know, sort of, we did a show called uh, TV's illest minority moments where we sort of explored the roles people of color have traditionally had on television. And then that led to a three uh, multi-part series called race Arama, where we explored race more. And then when Christmas we were Christmas Eve, we went out with the executives at VH1 and we were kind of drunk and they said, you guys should do a reality show. And I said, I have an idea. We should do a show called The White House where we make white rappers move to the South Bronx and battle it out for 100 grand. And they said, that's a great idea. So that led to The White Rapper Show, which was really popular. And then we did a woman's version of that called Miss Rap Supreme. And then Ego Trip split apart like most good bands. You know, we put out some good records and um, people grew apart. And I decided that I wanted to continue in film and television. And that's kind of where I've been for the last, I don't know, 15 years doing that. Uh, Sasha, this has been amazing. And at some point in the future, would you come back for a part two? Because I literally have so many questions left to ask you. Of course. Um, we didn't talk about the 1865. Well, that's the thing. We're going to get there. I'm sure I like, I want to keep you for a little bit longer if that's okay. Yeah. Um, but before, uh, we, you know, jumping off from kind of like what you were talking about with ego trip. Like it was such a cool moment where there were a lot of like, sort of like 
cooler versions or indie versions of other big magazines, you know, like Ego Trip for music magazines, like Big Brother for skateboard magazines, Film Threat for film magazines. And ultimately, they all get kind of like bought up. Was that ever presented to you as an option or was that something you guys were just like, we don't want to sell our magazine out like that? We tried. I actually had a great meeting with Fausto Vitello, the publisher of Thrasher. And he was, you know, a friend of mine, uh, this artist, Cycle, Chris Cycle, he was working in San Francisco um, for Thrasher. And um, he introduced me to Fausto, you know, very humbly. And I was like, wow, you're the man behind all this. This is amazing. And, you know, hip hop and, and all the stuff we do in Ego Trip is totally akin to the way hip hop is going. I mean, look, I love skate rock and skate punk, but like that, that sort of style is changing. It's fading, like more kids in the skate world, like hip hop, but like, you know, what we do at Ego Trip is a blend of all those things. And he was sincerely interested and we had a few conversations and then unfortunately he passed away. Um, So who knows what would have come of that. But I think, you know, for where Ego Trip was, you know, partnering with Thrasher would have been amazing. Um, huge fan of that of that publication. So we tried, but you know, there were no there were no takers at the time, and I think people were starting to see the writing on the wall at magazines. You know, the internet was starting to happen, and I think people were realizing that magazines, you know, the 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 time was limited and. The fortunate thing that Ego Trip was able to do was do these books and these television shows. So it, the Ego Trip brand evolved beyond just magazines. So that was um, a fortuitous move on Ego Trip's part. But after the band kind of disintegrated, everyone kind of went their own way, and I just sort of continued forward with you know with the projects I've been working on. I, I'll, going back way before this now, did you actually come up with the burn logo for that first seven inch? Because I know you said you did the video still. No, 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 no. All I did was on the burn seven inch, the still of Chaco holding the mic stand over his head, mm-hmm. you know, that's from a live performance. So I shot the video from which the still was taken. But I I, am, I don't even know who did the burn logo, but it's it's a great I don't remember, but it's a great logo. It's oh yeah, classic. it's one of the best. <laughs> like it yeah, just, it pops on his shirt. It's like wow, that's that's a good logo right there. Yeah, um, and and that comes out of sort of in a way it comes out of hip hop. I mean, Chaka had a clothing line before that called Plastic, and um, you know I think the guys in the band all have an eye for you know what is you know, contemporary and hardcore at the time, sort of some of the more clean looking stuff, you know, that I think that the middle-class kids kind of ushered in, but it also had this hip hop aesthetic and identity that um, also made it unique. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and kind of going back to that time, once again, like, was there, you know, sort of that, that graffiti thing, did that continue kind of being part of hardcore like it well, it obviously did right like there's certainly a rise of other bands that featured writers kind of into the late 80s and into the 90s yeah i mean i, I think i started to fade out it's interesting because it it kind of coincides with chaka's rise or his sort of transition out of hardcore into sort of major label system with orange nine millimeter yeah. so right around like 96 we were kind of out of traditional hardcore. Maybe Chaka stuck around longer, but at that point I was, you know, 
in deep in the throes of ego trip and um you know there, it was a new scene it was new kids there's abc no rio which was a separate thing and i wasn't really a part of any of that at that point i i kind of i don't want to say moved on because i was still a fan of the music and i was still friends with people who were intimately involved i mean Isaac is one of my you know great friend and brother to me and uh he never stopped doing music or doing hardcore so i always had a connection to it but by 96 i was kind of i you know i couldn't tell you what was going on in new york hardcore after 96 mm-hmm. well you do eventually form the band with Isaac too the wowling incident right yes which yes. is incredible. Like that's, you know, obviously Isaac's got a pretty storied career in hardcore, but that's, I, I think that's super underrated as far as his projects go. Yeah. I mean, me and Isaac were in a band in high school. Um, so my first sort of musical ambitions were in a garage with, with him and a guy named Harry who might've played in a band 25 to life. He's played in a bunch of bands um, after, you know, the little garage band that we had, but um, you know, to, being a band with Isaac, you know, years later, grown ass men, um, it's fun. You know, um, I love writing that kind of music. And I love performing it. And the people who still care and are true to it are like, they live for it. So it's, um, I mean, you're not Van Halen, but you can, you can have a good time and people deeply appreciate what you're doing. So we're, we're working on a new record as well, but Isaac's like all over the place. He's got like a million projects and, He's sort of budding as a um, internet celebrity these days, and he's just funny. He's got a twisted sense of humor, but you know, again, most people I know from hardcore uh, are still very independent-minded people making music, doing different projects, very creative people, and it was a platform for for like-minded people who needed a creative out outlet, and um, it continues today with, with most of these folks. Going back to that first band, what was the kind of sound of that vibe of that first band that you did with Zach? I mean, it's funny because I believe Harry's sister was dating the original drummer from Leeway. And, you know, that first Leeway record, I don't know if it's underrated, overrated, but I just think it's phenomenal. And Oh, it smokes. And it's an example of, in many ways, when rap rock is not whack, right? Yeah, yeah. Because Eddie sounds like if Ozzy Osbourne could rap a little bit, like it would be Eddie from Leeway. And um, because he's from Queens and hip hop is in his bones, it's in his marrow. He's able to make, they were able to make music that was, you know, metal, hardcore, whatever you want to call it, but also had a level of soulfulness that tapped into hip hop in a way it didn't feel like he was trying or he was a wannabe. It was very natural. And I think that's being a product of Queens. You know, these are the guys that we played football with in Astoria Park. You know, these are guys who they love metal, but they love hip hop too. And they understand the aesthetic value and and the balance that you have to maintain to pull that off. And um, to me that born to expire, I mean, you know, you, you go to all the classics, you know, Age of Quarrel, born to expire, um, you know, uh, out of step. I mean, there's just, it's all this stuff, it's all building blocks, but it still sounds great to me. It still is inspiring to me. And, um, I don't know. I mean, I guess old people sort of lean in on what they remember to be great from their time, but 
I have to say, you know, some of the stuff I might hear today, some of it just doesn't appeal to me in the same way. And it probably shouldn't. It should appeal to a new generation of kids. But there are just certain standard things in hardcore, in punk, that just like the blues, there are standards. There are standards in hardcore. And um, and it's it, it has a great value if you if you can appreciate it. And I love when people continue it. Well, it's, it's, you know, not so much without a step, but with the other records you brought up and certainly with like even breakdown, you kind of hear that, that hip hop influence kind of in the approach to, to the lyrics, like kind of the, the, the flow of the lyrics are, are is very much kind of indebted to, to emceeing. Yeah, there's like, like, yeah, I believe this is like 87 to 89 period where yeah. breakdown, crackdown, you know, all these bands kind of had a, a, a bit of a hip hop vibe, but I think that's just, New York street culture and kids going to public school, you know, it's just a part of your culture and identity. And that's why in many ways it was natural. It wasn't a stretch. It wasn't Limp Biscuit. You know, it was, you know, something else. Well, I guess it goes down to like something being, you know, real and like from the street, like, you know, like this, this music is like these people that you're talking about, like, you know, it's not even, it's no secret. Like it's, it's very storied at this point that these are like, you know, some of the hardest of hardcore bands going ever. Yeah. And these are people with real problems. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, these are people living in squads, knocking people's teeth out and collecting them. I mean, it's just, uh, the stories that you hear about the Cro-Mags alone and, you know, these guys don't get along these days, but, um, you know, at their at their heights, I mean, all of them together, it's 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 just a, a chemistry that's that's really special. I'm not saying that they don't continue to make special music together or apart, but there's just something about that combination that you can't really you can't really replicate. Yeah, and it's well, it's also you know going back to what you're talking about, ego trip, like the fact that you feature punk magazines, you sort of punk bands, you feature skateboarding. It was, it's you know, it's natural coming from New York that this stuff is kind of all mixing together that it would kind of become what comes out in that magazine. Yeah, well, you have more ability to move around in New York, and it's easier, I think, in some ways to be yourself. It's probably harder to be yourself in places where you know, uh, there just isn't the same amount of information and, um, people are scared to meet people who are different from them. So it's probably easier to be like everyone else than to stand out. And, you know, New York was a great place to be an individual and and like lots of different things and mix and match. And I kind of think it's like, you know, obviously I'm much like yourself. I'm definitely listening to breakdown and crackdown and stuff more than a lot of stuff that's happening today. But like, it feels like today, the rest of the world, at least sonically is kind of catching up to that. Like the fact that, you know, these, this next generation of kids don't have to decide or, or to stick to like one genre or, or like one or two kind of like areas of music. You can just kind of skip around and listen to everything. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's great, particularly for kids of color who in the past might've felt like it was weird or, or out of step for them. I mean, what kids listen to now all kids is everything and you can kind of hear that influence in their music or you can at least see it in the way that they you know their so-called swag or how they carry themselves i mean these hip-hop artists are the new rock stars i mean let's be honest no one gives a shit about rock stars you know and unfortunately that's well that's part of the problem with people feeling threatened in america and they feel like their identity is being threatened and that's why people have to say well why do you guys want rock and roll you have nothing to do with it it's like no you just feel out of step because rock and roll isn't cool 
And this is coming from a dude in a rock and roll band. I love rock and roll, and it's my identity, and I'm going to play rock and roll because uh, I love it and I enjoy it. But in terms of like mass popularity, rock and roll is not it. And what does that mean for hardcore? Not much, because hardcore has always been a niche sort of subculture with people who are there for the party. So I don't think rock's lack of mainstream popularity has any real effect on you know hardcore or punk. Those people are always going to be there. But you know, hip-hop, these rappers, and, and they don't even call it hip-hop. I don't know what they call it, but whatever it is, their swagger, how they move is more in line with Tommy Lee, 1987, than it is Eric B. and Rakim, 1987. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as I say, there's so many places I want to go with this conversation. So I'll just go into a lightning round if that's okay. Cause I definitely want to so, talk about 1865 before we go, but um, just going to the white rapper real quickly, what was that casting process like? Because you obviously wound up with some, some uh, intense characters and stuff like that coming out of it. So I was just kind of wondering, how did you go about finding people? Was it a submission process? I mean, we had tryouts. We had, you know, hundreds of rappers show up and rap for, you know, myself, Prince Paul, MC Search, and our producers. So it was, I don't want to say it was American Idol, but it was a process of people really trying to apply themselves to make the cut. And, you know, we wanted to make sure that there wasn't any overlap in terms of, you know, we don't want every rapper to be overtly political. We don't want every rapper to be overtly, you know, rapping about killing their mother. You know, it was um, really just sort of casting something that would create the broadest conversation possible around what? Identity, you know, around, um, you know, who... Because it's funny, you know, I wound up doing Eminem's book and I'm in his basement in Detroit and just out of no, I'm interviewing him and just out of nowhere, he's like, you know what I hate? I'm like, what? He's like, I fucking hate that white rapper show. I hate that show. And he went on and on about how much he hated it. I said, yo, do you know I created that show, right? He's like, what? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I created that show. I was like, and don't you get the joke? He's like, no. I was like, yo, no one cares anymore if you're a white rapper because of you, because you came out in a way where you were true to yourself in an authentic experience that felt like it was true to who you were and it was different and people appreciated that. They appreciated your honesty. They appreciated your creativity and they acknowledged that you weren't a poser. And I said, your success has made it so being a white rapper is not a big deal anymore or at least not a big deal like it used to be. And he was like, Oh, okay. I I didn't think of it that way. I was like, yeah. You also so, never saw the Detroit episode because I think that you kind of make that clear in that episode. What with the Detroit episode that like yeah Eminem has kind of like changed it for for white rappers. Right. Yeah. I guess he didn't see that episode, but uh, we tried to get him. Ironically, we got Kid Rock, which yeah, is funny. Um, but I had interviewed him for the cover of Spin Magazine some years earlier. Kid Rock has changed a bunch, um, but uh, um. Yeah. So I that think. audition, sorry. So that audition that's kind of shown on the show, like that was it. It wasn't like something where you had heard demos prior and you're like, oh, this one, we got to get this person on. No, we had people show up and we gave them a shot to rap. I mean, we, we had a guy, it's in the show, a guy was like rapping in Yiddish. I mean, we, it was a really broad range of yeah. people who came out. And um, I think we chose, a, we put together a pretty banging cast and 
John Brown, for instance, is someone I still know and he, you know, does lots of marketing stuff. He still does music. He actually lives in my neighborhood. Um, you know, some of these folks are still in touch with each other, but there might be some episodes on YouTube, but it was, uh, it was a radical show for its time and it had, it had great ratings for its time. Um, and it's funny, we were going to do season two. We we're going to call it Revenge of the White Rapper because so many white rappers hated the show. It was like, yo, this show sucks, but let me on. I'll show you. I'll win. You know, so it was like the the frenzy of, of all these rappers who wanted to be on the show would have been, it would have made for an extra competitive um, season. But the new president of the network wanted something that spoke more directly to the audience and the audience of VH1 at the time was largely women. So we did a show called Miss Rap Supreme. But if you think like, you know, if if women in hip hop in real life are marginalized, what makes you think a television show about women trying to make it in a marginalized genre is going to be a hit? Um, so I thought it was a good show, but it didn't really connect in the way White Rapper did. And that was it. I was lucky I worked at Much Music, which aired both of them. Right. Um, and I don't think they aired... Like, I think they aired um, White Rapper, but I think, like, the other, like, they just kind of gave up halfway through for some reason because, like, <laughs> but um, but it was amazing working there because I had access to all the screeners. So I could sit down in the basement and watch them, like, when wow. I was at work. And it was, it, it, they, they're both such awesome shows and they would be, you know, they're kind of evergreen. Like, they would be amazing to watch now on a streaming service. Hey, man, I'm ready. Someone cut me a check. All right, I'll, make I'll, it I'll, I'll make some calls to Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, as I said, Sasha, I could talk to you forever. There's so many more things I want to talk to you about, but I'll, I'll let you go on with your life. Um, uh, but before I let you go, I do want to talk to you about 1865 because uh, I think it's such an incredible album that you've 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 put out. And uh, yeah, I just kind of want to hear from your perspective. Obviously, talking to Honeychild from her perspective about how the band came together. But how did it come together um, from your eyes? Well, coming off of the Wilding incident. You know, Noah, who's a good friend of mine, the bass player from Wilding Incident, he moved to California and like, you know, everyone's working on different projects. And, you know, my trajectory was, you know, I did White Man Dingoes and then I did Wilding Incident and I actually did a whole album with Prince Paul called Super Black with Prince Paul and Jay Zone. There's a whole album that hasn't been released yet. It's kind of a couple of years old now, but I really like collaborating with people um, that I respect. And, you know, I had this desire to do a band that was vaguely blues based and really stripped down. So initially it was going to be me and Chuck Treese. Do you know Chuck? Absolutely. Mick Rad, one of the, one of the greatest of all time. Yeah. I mean, Chuck plays every instrument is a really sweet guy. He played, he, he played shows with the white men dingoes. He's just, he can play every instrument and he can sing his ass off. So initially, um, 1865 was going to be a two-piece with Chuck playing drums and singing because he could sing his ass off. And I have video of initial rehearsals, you know, um, actually at my office at Mass Appeal, it was a room that was empty and I set up amps and a drum kit and we would rehearse. And I, I kept saying like, yo, Chuck, man, I want to get you to sing. And then it wouldn't necessarily happen. And then a voice literally told me like, yo, you know, we should call Honey Child. And Honey Child, is someone, you know, we have many mutual friends. I jammed with her years ago, and she is just the most natural, gifted artist. She's just an artist. Like, she can make COVID masks. She can draw. She can 
sing her ass off. She can play guitar. She can play bass. I mean, she's just the most natural artist I've ever met in my life. Like, I believe that she's just, just people should just give her money because she's an artist and she should wholly exist as an artist and she shouldn't do anything else in life but make art. So I called her up and I said, Hey, would you be down the jam? And she said, sure. It shows up with a little pedal case and like, um, and we just started jamming. And then I was like, yo, this is incredible. Um, and then I knew she can sing, but I hadn't, I mean, she really can sing like mm-hmm. on another level. And she's someone who understands the aesthetics of punk and hardcore and is just all about it. You know, we, we made this record and I really like it. And I was like, yo, we got to like maybe next album do some keyboards. And she was like, no, you know, she shut it down because she's, um, you know, she has the vision for what this thing can be. And I think that like, she's a major part of, of why I think it's unique. And it's one of these things where you make art and you want people to like it. And, um, with 1865, like I like it, that's all that matters to me really. If other, it's really beautiful when people connect with it, but I feel really lucky to have collaborated with, with Honey Child and Chuck to make the album. And, um, you know, Chuck plays bass on the record too. He plays drums and, um, you know, we recorded it up at Applehead Studios in Woodstock, which is where Coheed and Cambria have recorded most of their albums and like all kinds of crazy artists have recorded there. So um, I think the record sounds pretty cool. You know, why are we the 1865? Well, I don't think much has changed. And, you know, ironically, the record came out about a year ago and look at where we are now in America. Like if that album would have come out now, it, you know, it would have been, it, it's it's almost like we were predicting the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, uh, black folks were supposedly emancipated in 1865 and in the years following, you know, people were being elected to office and there were all these economic gains and opportunities and things that were happening. And then what happened? Well, this organization called the Ku Klux Klan popped up and then Jim Crow popped up and all of these things that sort of got in the way of the progress that was happening happened. And then interestingly enough, it feels like the exact same thing deja vu is happening now. So oddly enough, you know, the album's called Don't Tread on We and we've got, you know, the snake that people know from the Don't Tread on Me flag and there's two snakes on ours and it says Don't Tread on We, you know. Um I think that's the way people feel right now. They feel like they're being treaded on and people are joining together to use their voices to say something and you know, um, for the most part, it isn't violent. Um, and you know, no one's, you know, no one's going to a church praying with people and then shooting up everyone in the congregation and then being arrested and then taken to Burger King for a burger. You know, that's not what's happening, uh, with, with folks of color in America. It's, it's largely peaceful protests. And unfortunately, um, a lot of police abuses and things and, when you think about the history of where the police force comes from, you know, it comes from initially slave catchers, you know, these posses that were organized to, you know, capture runaway slaves or enslave people who weren't even slaves. People are paid money and paid bounties to sort of capture people. When you stop to consider that that is sort of the rib, so to speak, of where the police department comes from, is it really a surprise that there's a real need for police reform in 2020 and 
don't get me wrong. I would be lying to you if I said all cops are bad. I know that there are great cops out there who care, who want to help people, who took who took the job because they want to help people. I believe that. But there's also a system that is corrupt, and there are also bad cops who are out there looking to hurt people, as we've seen on, on multiple times on camera. So, you know, we're at this place where America is sort of having this enema. I mean, it was just announced today that the Washington Redskins are finally going to, you know, get rid of this sort of derogatory mascot, the Washington Redskins. I mean, that flew for so long. And now, because of what's going on, it's, you know, FedEx and all these corporations are like, oh, no, we can't stand for this. And so now real change is happening. So to be in a band that, you know, I don't know, some some of Gavin's minions said we're not punk. What is punk? I don't know. Do I dress like a punk? Am I a punk? I don't know. I don't know what that really means. But I think the spirit of what punk is lives in the music that we make. And I think it's coming at the right time. I think the punk that I liked, whether it was Agnostic Front or Cause for Alarm or Reagan Youth, all of these bands said something. They had a platform. They were about something. And I think that the 1865 is about something at a time where people are expecting you to be about something. Yeah, well, exactly. And like for people like Gavin, it's like, you know, Reagan was definitely not punk. No one has ever said Reagan is punk. And so how could something worse than Reagan, which he's totally fucking embracing and backing, be anyway punk rock? And it, and it's not to let Canada off the hook, like the history of the RCMP here, it was put in place to oppress and suppress indigenous people in Canada. And like Canada has a huge history of racism too. And it's kind of like, it feels like what's happening in America is, is spreading around the world and just people looking at, you know, the, the history of police in Australia, the history of police all over the place in South America and, and just just all these places where it, it's colonial violence find still existing today. Yeah. Yeah. And I think music is a great way to sort of address these things. And like I've said to people, like, if you don't, you know, if you even if you don't like the lyrics or what the band is about, I mean, I believe that it's, I like it. You know what I mean? Yeah. The people have the right to not like it, and that's cool. People say mean things on the internet, that's fine. But I can go to sleep at night saying that I felt it's a real privilege to be in a band with Honey Child, and um, she's super talented. And Flora, our bass player, is amazing. She's in a band called Mafa, and our drummer Biz was in a band called Dragons of Zenth. He's super talented. I mean, I I'm, I just feel blessed to be able to collaborate with people who are of that caliber and also feel that like what we're about is valid and valuable at this point in history. Yeah. And like to go back to the LP for a second, like it's, it's, uh, you know, it's outside of the, the, the weight and the importance of what's being said lyrically and the themes of the whole record and the whole concept of the, the, the group, obviously, but like, it's such a cool sounding record. Like it is like a, it's almost got like a psych punk kind of feel where you can kind of get lost in it in a, in a real way. Yeah. I mean, I think as a guitar player, I just like rock. So I yeah. think that there's just, you know, maybe no, maybe it's not all punk. Maybe some of it is metal. Maybe some of it is just classic rock. I don't know, but it's, it's, it's my expression. And, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a Van Halen style guitar playing. It's, no. you know, pretty, pretty straightforward stuff, but, um, I think it gets the point across and I think, you know, uh, Honey Child, her lyrics and her delivery just takes it. I mean, I just remember being in the studio 
and you know she wrote the lyrics and she's gonna go in and she's gonna sing and I'm just sitting there like holy shit I can't believe this is happening like she is doing what she's doing so naturally and um I don't know she even live it's just every every time it's something new and different and she goes somewhere different the band has the you know some of these folks are classically trained or you know what I mean I, I I'm not like a trained musician you know I I can play what I play and um I think I sound like me but these folks can sound like lots of different people. So to have, you know, such seasoned musicians in the band, I think makes it, makes it something uh, worth checking out. Did you ever see McRad back in the day? I think once, um, way, way, way back. Um, but, um, I love McRad. And then, you know, Chuck Treese put out a solo album that I really dug in 1990, I'd listen to that record over and over again. He mm-hmm. played every instrument and sang on it. Um, I mean, he's played with Billy Joel. I mean, the dude is just a, a beast. He yeah, can play every instrument. He was an urge overkill. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, so amazing. Anyway, as I said, I could talk to you forever and I look forward to the part two. Thank you so much. Well, not just for coming on the show today, but the inspiration to be doing this whole thing. I mean, you know, I don't know how punk the conversation was, but, um, you know, hopefully there were some interesting things said and I appreciate the opportunity to talk and, you know, I love this stuff. I think, um, I'm very fortunate to have had to be a part of something with other young people and to see the, what's possible, what you can do yourself and the power of doing things yourself. And I couldn't have learned any of this stuff in a college. I had to learn heads on, you know, being on tour with burn, being a roadie, carrying equipment at 17, 18 years old, going to different cities, meeting people, um, different kinds of people. I mean, that education I couldn't have gotten in college. I got it, you know, on the streets of New York city with my friends. So, um, I feel very lucky to still be here today. Um, the last thing is I'm finishing a film about Rick James for Showtime right now, um, which will hopefully be out the top of 2021. Oh, one more thing, actually. Did you, was there ever a planned white rapper history book for Ego Trip? Where did you hear that? Like we, that was something that was discussed. I mean, you've got some Nard, Nardward level information. There. <laughs> I wish I could. Oh my God. I wish I could be, uh, be the God himself on this one, but no, I, I, that's on, that's on the internet. That's actually in the Wikipedia page. Oh, interesting. Yeah. There was discussion of that and I'm surprised no one's done it since. I mean, um, that people would buy that book, but, um, I think ego trip disintegrated by the time, um, that came together. But what is the deal with Nardwar? Like, what's his deal? Like, is, does he have a private investigator? Like what's, what's the deal with that dude? You're Canadian. He, uh, I've, I've met him a couple of times. Like it's not a, you know, I'm sure, you know, it's like, that's not a gimmick. That's who he is a hundred percent. And, uh, he, he has like a, a wild zine library that he says he just kind of goes back to. And I think it's probably now also magazines and news clippings. And I, I don't think there's a team. Like, I think there's a record store that he likes to go to. I know he's mentioned this one record store. I think one of the ones what he did with Snoop Dogg back in the day, uh, right. he, he, he mentioned like this record store that he goes to and talks to these guys there. But yeah, like he is on another level with the stuff he, he finds out. Like, it's just, you know, I just, I, it constantly boggles the mind. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Well, look, man, thank you so much for, for rapping with me. Happy to talk anytime. You've got the time. And uh, I look forward to, to uh, you know, telling people about it. 
Thank you, Sasha, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Sasha will be back for a part two at some point in the near future. Because as you heard right there, I like to talk to this guy. There's a lot for me to talk to him about, you know. And and I really thank you, Sasha, as well for, for all the influence that you've had, not just on culture, but specifically my life, like going back and looking at old issues of Ego Trip, looking at the Ego Trip um, rap list book, looking... It's just, it's incredible. So anyway, a lot more to talk about with Sasha. Also, don't forget to check out the incredible, the 1865 Don't Tread on We record, as well as the Honey Child episode from earlier in this week. That's an all-star band. Like, what an all-star band. You've got, like, a bunch of legends coming together to make this incredible project. And, oh. Well, on to next week on the show. Next week on the show, Tristan and I were talking. We should keep a New York theme kind of going because Honey Child and Sasha both talked about New York in a really interesting period of New York, you know, like a period of New York where it's it's after sort of like the birth of, of rap and hip hop and punk and hardcore. And it's kind of like... I don't know this weird moment in the in the late eighties, early nineties where where things started changing and and we focused on it a little bit in this episode and we're gonna talk about it a lot next week on the show because we have not one, not two, but three episodes. First episode is with my good buddies for a part two. Simon Doom comes on the show with David Up to talk about their uh street punk past, their 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 punk rock pass, their charged hair pass. It's a it's a hilarious conversation. That is one not to be missed. And I promise you, you will enjoy that. If you enjoy Turned Out of Punk, especially if you enjoy uh, free flowing moments on Turned Out of Punk, like Turned Out of Punk footnotes, you will enjoy that episode. And then after that, we have my friend and your friend too. Kevin Gill. That's right. We will be exploring Striving for Togetherness records. We'll be talking about GCW wrestling. Kevin Gill is one of these people that connects a lot of worlds because we will also be exploring, finally for me here, the Juggalo punk rock connection. And it is a it is a fun episode. And then capping off the week, we'll be capping off the week with one of the inglorious bastards themselves. Yes, from the movie Inglorious Bastards, the Quentin Tarantino one, not the not the old school one. The from but the Quentin Tarantino Inglorious Bastards, Omar Doom, the actor Omar Doom, the DJ Omar Doom joins me on the show and you have no idea where this one is going. This one goes to some really awesome places. Omar is someone who, in addition to being in all these Quentin Tarantino movies, also pops up in some weird places throughout New York punk rock history. And we will discuss all of that next week on the show. I got a lot of work. I got to edit three episodes. Holy. Well, that's it for me, everyone. Thank you for listening. Remember, as always, black lives matter. The lives of indigenous people matter. Go out, get informed, show up. Uh, donate. It's, it's, you know, look what's going on in Portland right now. Look what's going on around the world right now. There's a, a moment of great upheaval and you want to be on the right side of that thing. So please go out and, and get involved, get, get, get educated, you know, um, all of us, you know, myself included, definitely go out there and please sign your organ donor cards and, and just do that because you're not going to need those organs afterwards, you know, and, and, and it helps, it helps people for real. And also go out there and make your own culture, be it a fanzine, be it a podcast, be it a band. Uh, it helps keep you together, you know, creative uh, release. You know, I was in the studio yesterday yelling for five hours and I feel great today. <laughs> I know I don't sound great, 
but I feel great today. So please, and you heard Sasha talk about on this episode, how powerful this stuff can be, um, you know, from a, from a mental health standpoint and things like that. So that's it. Okay. Everyone have a great weekend or week or whenever you're listening to this, uh, stay safe. I love you. And I'll see you next episode. Bye.